0: Hi, this is presenter Crystal DiNapoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. So, We'd like to start off Indigenuity in, in true fashion by acknowledging that we are broadcasting out from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. They are the world's first astronomers, uh, custodians of the world's longest continuing culture. And I feel like in Indigenuity, um, we really try to, I guess, play into this um theme of storytelling and knowledge sharing and I use this as a reminder for you all to be making sure that you are acknowledging the country in which you're passing through whether you're listening to this live or you're playing back later Um, and I'd like to pay my respects to Wurundjeri elders past and present and, and acknowledge their continued connection to these beautiful lands. So today we're going to be speaking with Nicole Smead. Nicole is a Warramai Biripai poet who works through language to reconnect with her culture. She's the First Nations Senior Project Manager for Red Room Poetry and has been a key contributor to the Poetry in First Languages program since its inception in 2018. Poetry in First Languages is a program that delivers First Nations-led poetry workshops to students to help support them to find strength in their cultural identities. And so today we're going to be speaking with her about her work and about her wonderful program. Nicole, welcome to Indigenuity. I wanted to start off by asking about your career as on Indigenuity. It really is an honor for us to get to speak to a broad, diverse range of blackfellas doing really cool things. And so for you as a trained musician and as a poet, I was wondering if you would like to share your journey with us into song and poetry.
1: Yeah, we are Boo Crystal. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I'd love to have a yarn with you about that.
0: How did you find yourself, I guess, um finding uh, poetry as I guess like the vessel for your, your storytelling, your expression? Uh, I
1: guess it's something I'm still finding. I wrote poetry when I was younger. I've always been drawn to poetry as a young kid, um my dad used to read this book called The Glugs of Glosh, which I think by memory is a Celtic kind of folklore text, but it's, it's written in poetic verse. He used to read it to me when I was younger and I had no idea what was going on, but I just loved the rhythm of the language. And then, when I was a teenager, I, like most teenagers, were were writing angsty love poems to help me through those years. Mm -hmm. And then I stopped writing poetry. And then, when I went to the Conservatorium of Music uh, to study voice, a lot of my friends were studying kind of opera and singing a lot of like operatic arias. But I was really drawn to French and German song which is based on poetry so a lot of those composers would find poetic texts that they loved and then write melodies and kind of score them for orchestras and i found that kind of intersection between the rhythm of the word and the melody of the music really really interesting uh and then it wasn't until I was in my 30s and working at an arts organization. That I had the pleasure of working on a program with Red Room Poetry. And the amazing poet Ali Cobby Eckerman was in residence. And they had put me as the staff member on that particular day that Ali was running a workshop with the local high school students. And we went out onto country and sat under these tall gums on the rocks and wrote. And Ali was like, you need to write too. (laughs) If you're here, I want you to write too. And then we were all sharing what we had written afterwards. And Ali came up to me and said, you should continue to write. You've You've got something to share and I think you should keep going. And so that kind of started my adult. Poetic journey. And that was in 2018, I think. Yeah, so it's only really been the last few years that I've gotten back into writing poetry. And this journey of writing poetry is really tied up with me reconnecting with my what am I and Birupai ancestry as well, and learning language and how language and word and rhythm. All come together to tell a story and create an experience, I guess, for myself and then for the the reader or the listener. Oh,
0: well, that is so beautiful, especially your story with Ellie. I guess that discovery or that encouragement um, with uh, someone to start expressing yourself in such a way and clearly finding that it's very natural for you uh, to continue along that path is just yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, yeah.
1: What I love about Ali's work, it seems so simple, but it is really complex. And going to school, when we're taught poetry, a lot of the time we look, well, I know that, that it's changed since I went to school a long time ago, but when I did go to school and study poetry, that we were looking at a lot of, like, old poetic forms and poetic texts that have a lot of rules. You know, um, you have to have so many syllables in a line and rhyming meter and all of that stuff. And I think that can turn people off poetry because it seems too complex.
0: Mm, Definitely.
1: Yeah. And so with Ali's encouragement, I was like, oh, actually, it doesn't have to be that complex. It can be complex in, in what you're the stories that you're telling in your poetry and what you're exploring emotionally and, and the imagery, but yeah, it can be told in a, in a, in simple language and in simple forms.
0: Beautifully put. And I, Actually, um, I guess as a student who's my exposure to poetry and I'm like a science student, but like my exposure to poetry um, through like high school is very much how you're describing with those sort of rigid rules. And I remember um, because I used to sing a lot and so I was very interested in this idea of poetry, but I guess I did get a bit caught up in the stress of the rules. And so the way you're sort of describing this approach really does seem like a very inviting and accessible way to start, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess to start expressing yourself through poetry.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I write uh I write, I run some poetry workshops with a group of women here where I live. And we've been doing it for 18 months, but it has taken that long for them to start to think that they're poets and that what they write is poetry. Like almost every time we get together they're like, Oh, I haven't written a poem, I've just kind of written like I don't know what I've written. And I was like, It is a poem. It absolutely is a poem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it. I think it takes a bit of time to break down those uh, ideas that we are taught when we're young. Yeah. Mm.
0: And so, for you, your uh, poetry has evolved to explore Indigenous languages. Um, I guess uh, through your, I guess through your writing. I was going to say lyrics. <laughs> My head's still in the song thing. Um, but um, I was wondering for you, how did this sort of arise, and what languages do you um, express yourself in through poetry?
1: Hmm. Yeah. So when I was at the conservatorium. I really enjoyed singing in language and we were encouraged to sing in German, French, Italian, Spanish. Um, and I found that I, I think because I am a musician and a, and a singer, I have a natural ear for picking up how languages sound and I really liked the way that you can play with the the shape of those sounds in your mouth. And I found that a lot of fun. And then in 2018, that that same year that I did the workshop with Ali Kobi eckerman Curly Saunders was in residence at uh, Bundanon where I was working at the time, which is an arts organisation in Nowra. And she had this idea for a program called Poetry in First Languages, and so I was able to be part of that very first inaugural workshop series that happened at Bundanon over uh, a week. So it was a week long of working with First Nations students in the Shoalhaven and language custodians and traditional owners teaching language words but also just Reconnecting with culture, smoking ceremonies, dancing, being out on country, you know, deep listening, it really kind of encompassed everything, not just the poetry writing. And at that time in my life, I was also just starting to reconnect with my Warramayin Birupai ancestry. I didn't grow up uh, knowing about my Aboriginality it was something that was kept secret in our family. Mm. The family story was we had Maori ancestry, uh, which a few generations back I think it was easier to say that and to explain, you know, our darker skin and than, wow. than it was to say that we were Aboriginal. And, I mean, <laughs> I don't really know the origins of that because, you know, all of those those people and those ancestors have passed away. But I can only imagine that, you know, it would have been really hard during colonisation. You, know, p- you know, kids were being taken from their families, uh, people were being put on missions, you know, were treated like second-class citizens. And if there was an opportunity to tell a different story or to assimilate best you could that was a, a mechanism of survival yeah um yeah so i found out the real story <laughs> as an adult and it really resonated with me and kind of made a lot of sense to me um internally and it was around that same time that I was working with Red Room Poetry and Curly and starting to learn language. And so that was really the start of my cultural journey as well. So language became really wrapped up in me exploring my creativity, who I really am.
0: Uh, yeah. Wow. And thank you so much for sharing that story. I have heard many similar tales of, I guess, um uh tactics for survival um and I guess it is uh it's i don't know it's it, that's very interesting to me as well, especially hearing about the the maori component um it's just uh I don't know it's i am very glad that you're uh, able to reconnect with culture through this medium and yeah. you mentioned very wonderfully this poetry in first languages initiative um and so I might give just a little bit of an explanation um or a description for it for our listeners but it was developed and launched at Red Room Poetry by Gunai poet Curly Saunders in 2018. And it commissions, publishes, and delivers First Nations-led student poetry programs on country and in First Nations community-led locations. So it's celebrating culture through poetry, music, dance, and art, um, and it aims to support students to find strength in their cultural identities, which is just an incredible program. And you have been, uh, I guess, a part of this program for quite a while now. It was incepted in 2018. Um, how I guess, uh, how I guess, have you watched the the program grow over the the course of the last five years?
1: Yeah, uh, it's such an amazing program, and I'm so grateful to Curly for having the idea <laughs> to start with and bringing me along for the journey. So, as I said, I was working for Bundanon in 2018 when Curly ran the first series of workshops at Bundanon, which was just incredible to be in that gorgeous space. Um, Bundanon is surrounded by 1,100 hectares of bushland. It's just really, really special, a special place. Um to be in that space with language custodians and elders and all of these wonderful young Koori people, uh, many of whom had, you know, maybe similar stories to myself. They know that they've got Aboriginal ancestry, but a lot of them weren't sure where from. You know, their parents had ticked the box on their school form and they go along to all these excursions, but, you know, weren't able to say who their mob was. So it was this really amazing experience of being together and kind of discovering together what it means, uh, cultural aspects that we hadn't been grown up with or they hadn't been passed down through our families. And this the strength of being able to learn some language words and have that deeper connection to country and the world around us through her name you know a country tells us what her name is that's where language comes from and so to be able to speak the words and know the words for the trees and the birds in the in the place that you live or the place that you're from is so so powerful so it was amazing to be part of that experience in 2018 and then curly just over the next few years was able to grow that program across the nation she ran many many workshops and worked with many poets commissioning poems in first languages up and down uh the east coast of new south wales and up into queensland in the northern territory and uh, yeah she even went out to the northern territory to run some workshops so that program grew quite a lot in a in a relatively short space of time uh and then it's had a few years where After Curly left Red Room, there were a few years where there were little programs ticking away, but um, there hasn't really been anybody in that space taking the program forward. So I started at Red Room this year in January as the First Nations Senior Producer, and one of the programs that I'm the custodian of is Poetry in First Languages. So we've been looking at ways to grow it into the future.
0: Oh well, that's very exciting. And congratulations as well. It sounds like you are um I guess like seemingly very well placed for this role, especially with your I guess you have you've described, you have a very similar sort of experience of Um, I guess, like coming to find culture through poetry and feeling culturally grounded in that aspect. And then you're describing many of the students that you're interacting with are on a very similar sort of journey of cultural connection. So it sounds like very, um, like you've completed a cycle there.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I have. And I, people talk about life purpose. (laughs) I, I feel like this has been one of mine, if not mine. You know, I was meant to to be here and to be part of this program and to be having the experiences I I was alongside of this program. Yeah, it feels like there was a lot of guidance and a lot of alignment.
0: And what would you say is the impact you're hoping Poetry and First Languages will have on the young people who come through the program? Well, we've seen the, the impacts
1: Already of just this pride in culture, you know, a lot of the kids, um, the students, turn up. They're a bit unsure about what's going to happen during the day and. Then when they leave, at the end of the day, they're standing taller, you know, their shoulders are broad and they they can't wait to go home um, until their family is what they've learnt. They can't wait to go back to school and to tell, you know, their friends at school what they learnt, the experiences they had and to start using language with each other. and. A lot of the f- the family members of these kids then approach Red Room and say, "Oh, what a wonderful experience! Where can we learn language too?" Excellent. And so it starts. Th- it starts this kind of um, hunger and curiosity of, "Oh, okay, it is out there. We can access it, and we want to access it." I think for so many of our grandparents and aunties and uncles, there's still a fear of language you know we weren't allowed to speak it we weren't allowed to pass it down um terrible things happened when you did and so there's still this fear of we can't we can't speak our language or there's this idea that it's it's not there anymore it's been i don't want to use the word lost but the knowledge has gone with with those that have passed passed over mm. um, but that's not true <laughs> it's alive and we're trying to make sure that it it's it continues to be living uh we're working on a program at the moment called Baraya Barai, which means sing country in Gatang, which is my ancestral language and we're looking at the whale song line up the east coast of those saltwater communities, from Lutruwita up to Mianjin, um, and so we're we're putting together this program. The idea behind it is we know that all of these saltwater communities on the east coast have whale story and have whale songline, and part of poetry in first languages is bringing together not only poetry and language and the written word, but also the spoken word and the song and dancing and science because poetry for us, for us blackfellas, isn't just the written word. It's in everything. Poetry is in everything. It's even in the relationships that we have with each other. Uh, And so we're looking at how can we make this program make more sense to us as black fellas culturally by encompassing all of those things that we do and so we would like to take students out onto country so that they can learn the whale story of their mob as well as you know the first Nations science behind what are the the markers of when do we know the whales are migrating in this particular area is it because the guy lilies are blooming or is it the wattle what are the what's the marine health um of these beautiful creatures like i feel like i'm not being very articulate i'm no, sorry
0: you, you definitely are and it's it sounds so interesting to me especially given um a lot of my focus is uh, focusing on Indigenous sky knowledge and how we encode that science in our stories. And so, of course, once again, there's this beautiful connection and overlap with poetry and that expression and science and history being encoded in poetry. So that just sounds wonderful.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, this program, hopefully we're looking for funding at the moment and we've just made, we did a pilot workshop on Dharawal country a couple of months ago with some students, which was so beautiful we only spent a day together but next year when we start running this program if we get our funding fingers crossed we'd like to do three-day workshops so the first day would be concentrated on telling yarns and stories about the whales you're starting kind of like a contemporary ceremony i guess for three days where you start with a smoking ceremony the stories and of the whales and then learning about those kind of First Nation sciences and then writing poetry and language and then turning that into song and dance so that we can celebrate a new contemporary song line with our communities and then pass that on the way that song lines have been passed on for millennia celebrating maybe in corroborees or I think it'll look different in each community. Well, I I don't think. I know it will look different in each community because it's a community-led program. So the elders will really shape what it looks like for their mob. But the hope is that whatever the outcome is then celebrated in community and then passed on to the next community who then go through that same process. So we're kind of passing on these whale stories and songs and dances up the East Coast.
0: Oh, that is beautiful. And that is um, I also think like a really interesting point too because I know a lot of people when um, hearing about Indigenous cultures or knowledge systems quite often use like a sort of like static past tense, um, you know, it's sort of like a we were then and we've sort of ceased developing now. And so yeah. I think sometimes some people get a bit scared about um Expansions on cultural knowledge, and so to hear about this particular um, songline and community led, led focus is very exciting.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's how we keep our culture alive. Like, <laughs> things can't survive if you don't continue to evolve.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 like once again, like you know, with the sky perspective, um, that is something that's so inherent to Aboriginal astronomy because we have such incredible sky knowledge detailing um, his historic events that have occurred in the skies over thousands of years, which we know with very great certainty that these these stories have come from such a, a long time ago, but that also there are certain limits on how when a story could have ar- arisen. So essentially we have these beautiful like thousands of year old stories and we have stories that have come a bit more recently in the last like thousands of years or so. It has to constantly evolve because the skies constantly change and evolve over the timescales of our our history here. On the scale of 60,000 years, skies change a lot. And so I see that a lot too with how it is through that, um, I guess, like constant adaptation and evolution that we are able to be the world's longest continuing culture. So it is lovely to see those expansions in this way as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Thank you. And I think it's really important too for language to be enlivened, you know, and we do that through speaking it and singing it, you know. It, It can't just remain static on a page, um, there needs to be this reciprocal relationship between language and country. Like I said before, our language does come from country and so it's an honour to be able to to sing and speak language back into country. And that's what songlines are all about as well. It's how we we honour and, and keep those alive and in our memories and we're able to pass them down because we are energetically continuing to breathe life into them.
0: And I guess like on that sort of um, that train of thought, because this is currently the international decade of Indigenous languages, so from mm. 2022 to 2020 Oh, sorry, to 2022 to 2032, um, I guess what do you... Do you see... Uh, do you, I guess do you see a strength in a declaration like this sort of focus of saying that this is a decade to focus on Indigenous languages? Is there anything that you're hoping, um, I guess, this sort of attention would bring to, um, I guess, uh, whether it because it's I guess it's not just like reviving Indigenous languages because many of them are still held within community, but I guess mm. it's more um, uh, trying to sort of highlight a focus on it. So, what sort of I guess like power do you see within declaring an international decade of indigenous languages?
1: There's a lot of power in it. there is i'm I'm about actually flying to Darwin tomorrow uh, to attend the Pulima Language Technology conference. So it's the largest language conference in the southern hemisphere, and it's I think this year we they've been saying there's more than nine hundred delegates coming from all over to be a part of this. Wow. And there is going to be a government announcement of their commitment to fund language programs for the international decade of indigenous languages. So there's power in that that the government have kind of have recognized how important this is and they want to fund programs in that space but also to get the word out so that it's just in people's minds that like a couple of years ago in 2019, I think it was, was the year of Indigenous languages. And it was really exciting to see people putting that on their email signatures, seeing posters around. It was just kind of in people's minds, not just fellas' minds, but, you know, um, everybody's minds. It was out there. Hmm. And I think, There's a power in that, in people recognising how important this is and that languages are alive and they're not necessarily being used in the way that they could be. And since 2019, we've seen a big shift in the way that language is respected. I can see it in the community that I live in, suddenly street signs, when you drive around now and bombardier in the Shell Haven, all of the signs that tell you what suburb you're in are now in Aboriginal language as well. Mm. And we've had that big campaign with um, postcodes as well um, with Australia Post. Now people are starting to write the country before their address, which is fantastic. So I think having celebrations like this just puts it in people's minds more and there's yeah immense power in that
0: yeah i think that's an excellent point i um as someone who's not uh like i guess like i'm um you know i'm trying to learn um more of the traditional language of my people so Ray. Um, but I'm not working heavily in this space. And yet even I've seen, especially after 2019 with the year of Indigenous languages, how much discourse there was surrounding people in Australia being interested in the idea of being able to teach or learn um, Indigenous languages in school rather than, I guess, Mm -hmm. some of the other languages we tend to be exposed to.
1: Yeah, yeah, people love it. People love to be able to name something properly, you know, like the... the... (laughs) just where we live there's a mountain called Cambawara but its its proper name is Gumbiwara fire mountain and when people find that out they're like oh my god i'm going to call it Gumbiwara all the time now because that's actually its name and i didn't know i think yeah people want to be respectful and they want to use the the proper names for things mm. Mm.
0: Well, it is exciting, um, and I look forward to seeing how, I guess, visibility of Indigenous languages and respect for Indigenous languages hopefully continues to increase across this decade of focus. Um, And I just have to say, uh, you know, thank you so much for the wonderful work you're doing with Red Room Poetry and Poetry in First Languages. Um, It's wonderful to know that those uh, programs uh, exist and are being conducted um, with just an incredible team of black fellow voices, and everything I've seen online has just been absolutely incredible. So, um, I just want to say it was a pleasure to speak with you today and uh, all the best for the rest of your work. Thanks, Crystal. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders, showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.